You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee, and with me is my sometimes co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Thank you for once again inviting me to be on your podcast, Kyla. Oh, thanks, Paul. Thanks for once again agreeing, because I'm not great at securing guests, because I'm so busy with work. <laughs> well, no, you have good guests. You've got good oh, guests lined up in the next few weeks. It's a matter of, can you just drop everything and record, and the... Yeah. Nice thing about coming here to record is that uh, the recording quality is a lot better than when we're recording in the office in a, you know, rush situation with people knocking at the door and echoing on your cell phone. And oh, yeah. And it's hard, like, to sit down and send an email and be like, hey, super important, smart person who knows more about this topic than I do want to be on my podcast. Yeah, and I'm not really sure when I can record it, but it'll probably be Thursday, and can I phone you Thursday at just any time, and you'll just it'll do it? like 9.30 at night some night. <laughs> well, there's some people who will do that. There's some people there, who will do are. that. There yeah. are, and, you know, but we've got, we do have some really good guests coming up in the next few weeks. Um, just people have to book super far in advance, and that's fine, but you get to be my uh, my filler. I like being the filler. I enjoy doing this. Anyway, we've got three really interesting driving law developments this week to talk about. And one of them, it's important that you're here, because the first one is one that you and I had sort of talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about the speed, um, lowering the speed limits on certain stretches of highway. And you and I had bandied about some suggestions of better things to do, and one of them is being done. I tweeted one. Uh, I said it on the podcast and I tweeted it that trucks on stretches of the highway should be restricted to the right-hand lane and they do that in in Germany they do it in parts of Europe they do it in other locations Mm -hmm. Uh, I recall when I was a child in Alberta there was locations where trucks were restricted to the right-hand lane I can't Mm -hmm. remember seeing that in the last 20 years yeah but the um, so I tweeted it and I was actually just thought maybe I would get some, uh, I, I was I was really trolling the trucking industry because <laughs> I thought somebody's going to come back and attack me. And instead, it was a bunch of people writing back saying, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Why aren't trucks, uh, you know, we had slower speed limits for trucks in Alberta on the right-hand lane. It was 90 kilometers an hour in a lot of, in some locations. Again, mm-hmm. this is like 30 years ago that I remember seeing those signs and my memory is faulty when it comes to certain things. But in any Be event. Careful, now, now you've said that on the air, the people will cross-examine you on it. Yeah, well, they might. I never claimed that my memory was perfect. Um, And if I did, then uh, I think they would be able to cross-examine me on that. Um, No, um, I tweeted it, and we talked about it, and then, lo and behold, what happened? Uh, They did it, but I want to call you out on this, because I don't think that you can claim credit for it. And the reason why is, after reading a tweet or hearing you say it on the podcast in 10 days could they possibly draft legislation move in at government speed and have it tabled i don't think so well i think they probably should in response to my to my tweets (laughs) and i would encourage them i am still claiming credit and i would encourage them to uh, 
Well, I mean, considering it was a you know it was a trolling tweet, uh, that's probably not the one to um, to make policy on the basis of. But yeah, obviously they were discussing it and considering it for a while. You did claim credit on Twitter, and I know noticed a lot of people, myself included, are on the uh, you know Paul Doroshenko as our Twitter overlord. I believe was what Rohana Rizal said. Uh, they're they're on that train. Yeah, and uh, and I you know I appreciate the nomination, but I have to decline. I I never wanted to be a dictator uh, or a Twitter overlord. So I'm uh, and I and I can only see this going badly. I can only see it going sideways. So and and besides, I mean you know. Uh, I, I I don't want the job. Maybe the person you want is the person who doesn't want the job. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, at this point, I'm I'm not putting my uh, my hat in the ring to be. I don't think it's a very realistic Twitter ring. overlord. Yeah. Anyway, so. Oh, nope. thanks. I'm good. So I'm glad you that straightened me out that it wasn't something is not going to happen. All right, back to driving law. Away from your ego and back to driving law. The government has um, now put forward a proposal to keep trucks from going in the right ha- or the left-hand lane on the stretch of the Coquihalla Highway between the Box Canyon chain-up area and the place that I can never pronounce the name of, Zopkios? I don't know. I didn't see it. I it, mean, I only saw the headline, and I've been waiting for you to tell me about it. Yeah, so it's just that stretch basically where the snow shed is. Um, which is, as we were discussing before, really the dangerous and scary part of the Coquihalla where you don't want to be in the same lane as the trucks. So it's really sensible. But I, I see this as being sort of the first step towards this happening with lots of other stretches of highway. As you're coming up past the snowshed, driving north, um, and you come upon trucks there, there will be one passing another. And the right one's in the right-hand lane, and the other one's passing, and then there'll be a third one that will decide to pass them, mm-hmm. you know, the two. Yep. And you're coming up and you're doing 110 or 120, it's 120 is the speed limit there, and the trucks are going between 70 and and 90 kilometers an hour, never 120, they can't go up I've that hill at 120. It'd have to be a, an empty or a flatbed or something, but, but still, in any event, um, and you're coming up on one, uh, yeah, it's fundamentally dangerous. Keep them in the right-hand lane in that spot. My concern is the trucks that um, that can only go 60, and I don't know, can they are they allowed to pass in the center lane, or are they absolutely prohibited and stuck in the right-hand lane? From my understanding, they're absolutely prohibited and stuck in the right-hand lane, but it's right now, it's only a small stretch of the highway. It's the three-lane so section, or is it the two-lane section? It's the three-lane section. Is it three lanes all the way, or does it cut down to two lanes? Because once you get to the top of that hill... So the chain-up area. Yeah. Okay, that's before. To just past the snowshed. Okay. All right. So that's three lanes all the way, based on my recollection. My memory less faulty than yours, but not perfect. That's true. I would agree <laughs> with that. I'd agree with that assessment. Um, but no, it's, it's a small area. So, you know, if you get stuck behind the dude who's going 60, then, you know, wait it out. You're a professional truck driver. You're used to long periods of time behind the wheel and long periods of time in solitude. So certainly you can withstand 20 minutes of 60 kilometers an hour. It's not going to be 20 minutes. Well, it's going to exactly. be five minutes. Then fine. There's, they have nothing okay, to so you're in the you're in the you're in the suck it up category. I am in the suck it up category, and so is the president of the trucking association. Oh really? They were yes. I was listening. Oh to, really? Oh really? Yeah really. Um, 
they, I was listening to an interview, and they are fully in support of this. Oh, well, that's interesting. I'm, I, I guess I'm glad for that. Um, yeah. you know, so I, your, troll, your attempt at trolling the Trucking Association would have failed, because it turns out they like the idea. Well, it's interesting, because the trucking industry are probably best so long as it's a level playing field. And if everybody's playing by the rules, then everybody, you know, there's no competitive advantage aside from, you know, you making smart choices as a business person. So if, you know, if everybody's abiding by the rules, it's probably the same level playing field. And so why not? If everybody's, you know, if trucks were limited to 90 kilometers an hour um, at nighttime or something like that, and all of them were limited to that, fair enough. What they've said um, in response to this has been that the biggest problem is that you get these trucks that end up spinning out or, or going off the road or causing an accident, and it actually disrupts all of the traffic for all of the other truckers. So putting oh, all doubt, trucks yeah. in the position where they're not going to cause an accident or be least likely to cause an accident is better for everybody overall. I'd be curious at the stats of how many trucks there are and how many accidents or disruptions are caused by trucks. Um, they did look at this, and this is one of the reasons why they put this into the legislation, was because they looked at who was causing the accidents there, and they found that it was primarily trucks, and it was primarily trucks who were not in the right-hand lane. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so, so it was, it, this was actually like... We're just going to, we question every other statistic and every other piece of research done by the government, but apparently we accept that one on uh, driving law with Kyle Lilly. Well, I accept that one because... It's part of your experience. It's part of my experience, having driven the Coquihalla Highway a bunch. Um, my experience reading news stories about accidents on the Coquihalla, because I'm paying attention because I have to drive it a bunch. And it's also um, an example where the government is able to point to evidence to support their policy. And it's evidence that makes sense... Not like we raise the speed limits and there are more accidents and we're discounting all other possible explanations for them. Well, you are always good at crafting a good argument to support one side or the other and you've done it <laughs> once again. Um, Evidence-based policy, it's not exactly a... Uh, I, I'm just thinking of my experiences and a significant, like winter time is the problem I found mostly with trucks. In summertime, I think the speeds they're traveling at is a little bit too fast and unsafe. Uh, going up the hills, obviously it's slow. And then going down the hills, I see them barreling down the hills. And then, you know, the, those hills, they can go barreling down. It's the long hills where your brakes are going to burn out or you're going to end up, you know, shooting off into the ditch where they're a little bit more careful. But uh, there's been many occasions over the years where I've been on an interior highway, not just the Coquihalla, where the problem has been improperly equipped trucks or trucks not capable of negotiating the conditions that of the roads you know improperly equipped trucks we haven't talked about this much on the podcast but maybe it's it's a good time for a short discussion about it i'll take you by surprise here but i mean we do a lot of traffic ticket defense and one thing that i see a lot of is tickets from cvse officers for trucks that don't have the proper equipment are not in good condition um, are overloaded on various axles and not loaded on other axles and and i mean logbook violations whatever but doing something funky at the scales you know <laughs> yeah a lot of unsafe commercial vehicle behavior and i as a driver it frightens me that there is so much of that out there and 
very little in the way of prosecution of it. I was driving through New Westminster the other day. I was going from uh, Richmond to Port Coquitlam, and it directed me right through town because the road was closed, and they had a, a big truck check uh, set up going both directions right in front of the city hall in New Westminster. And I was amazed how many tow trucks were there yep. and how many trucks were about to get hauled away. And every truck driver who saw that thing, uh, that that stop, that inspection station they'd set up impromptu, you know, uh, had terror on their face. Yeah. And it makes me think that it's not necessarily uh, an issue of always trucks with uh, bad brakes or what have you. You know, I think sometimes they are overly scrutinizing them, uh, at, but I see them issuing all sorts of violations. I see them issuing all sorts of tickets. Um, you would think that uh, bearing in mind, you know, the fact that we're out there defending these, that we would have more of them coming to us. And if the truck drivers are just um, paying these tickets and the trucking companies are just paying these tickets, they're probably doing themselves a disservice. Because I, I know in the past, in the times that we've done them, we've often been able to find... Defenses. Defenses. Yeah. But I think also the penalties, you know, it's just financial. And most people are happy if they don't get company points. And I've never really entirely been able to figure out what people mean by company points, but... There's not like a thing of company points. Sounds like something from Ontario to me. Right? Yeah. Um, but there's no, you know, there's no <coughs> penalties in the same way that we do in BC for impaired driving, despite the fact that, you know, commercial vehicles, big commercial vehicles that are not properly equipped, that are not roadworthy, po pose a huge public safety risk. Yes. But, I mean, there is some obviously significant enforcement. But it doesn't seem to deter the behavior that doesn't deter the behavior because it's a cost issue every one of those companies is operating on tight margins they're trying to trying to make a profit and survive maintaining their trucks is uh, and labor are the two uh, most expensive things so logbook violations for people driving too long and trucks that are not you know on the condition that they should be in uh, are there two things that are going to fall through the cracks they're just trying to survive. It's business people trying to survive. I get that. I just think that if the province is going to say, oh, you know, for impaired drivers, we're going to increase the penalties to try and keep people from making the decision to get behind the wheel drunk in the first place, why are they not doing the same thing for something else that's clearly a huge public safety risk and is an ongoing problem? I don't know. And I don't know that I'm equipped to answer the question. I, you know, again, this is the thing. You get these tickets and you're the one who's defended them in the past. I've never got really far into them um, to know. And we should really get somebody from the trucking industry uh, on your podcast to talk about this because it's, uh, I'm sure they're going to have a very, um, uh, a much better informed opinion about this than you or I do. <laughs> Probably. Anyway, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, speaking of impaired driving, do you remember back in the summer when people were talking about C-46 and there were a bunch of jokes about impaired canoeing? Yes, I do recall that. And there was a discussion about it and there was, somebody called me about it and I refused, like a media person called me about it and I kind of... Turned the interview down because you're like, that's stupid, it never happens? No, I turned the interview down because I didn't think that I was equipped enough. Well, actually, I broke my canoe. 
Um, <laughs> you broke your canoe and you were sad. <laughs> I broke the seat in the canoe and I planned on fixing it all summer long. I broke it uh, maybe last year. I don't know. I know Did it's you break it while you were impaired? No, I broke it. it well, I, no, no. <laughs> um, I, I was at the front of the canoe, not the back of the canoe. Um, but uh, Does where you sit in the canoe make Well, that's the thing. I'm thinking if you're sitting in the back, you're, you're, you know, you're sort of the driver. You're, you're choosing the direction more than the front. But in any event, I broke my canoe and I didn't want to talk canoes. I was feeling bad about the fact that I hadn't repaired my canoe and they called me about this canoe thing. And I said, no, no, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not really equipped to talk about this today. Just like the trucks. And I'm not, a, you know, I don't want to talk about that. I'm just <laughs> declining interviews. I did not know that Paul Doroshenko declined an interview. You're always joking that <laughs> don't get between. Paul and a camera. It's <laughs> <laughs> the most that's, dangerous That's place. complete bullshit. <laughs> Um, you're the one who created that rumor and legend and you're the one who yes. keeps it going. It's not well, true. It's true. Um, <laughs> the, uh, point I was making is that despite the fact that there's a lot of joking about impaired canoeing and ha ha ha, that's how Canadians drink and drive. And, um, I, I can't believe that in Canada you could get charged for, you know, canoeing well intoxicated. There's never actually been a case that's been taken to trial where the section of impaired operation of a vessel has been interpreted to determine whether or not it includes a canoe from a judicial interpretation standpoint. I don't see why it ever would be, because why the hell would anybody ever charge somebody with paddling a canoe while impaired? Well, why would anybody charge somebody with paddling a canoe while impaired? I agree with you, but... Paddling a canoe well impaired and capsizing the canoe well impaired and killing somebody in the process kind of maybe answers your question. Why would you charge somebody? I, I still don't, you know, the, you could be in your backyard and you could jump on the picnic table while impaired and somebody's sitting on the other side of the picnic table and the picnic table collapses and the other person dies. Criminal negligence causing death. Is it criminal? What's the criminal part i don't know well i mean i really only know it in the driving law context yeah well there you go so but <laughs> my point is there's nothing i don't see anything criminal in that it's just a an accident and accidents happen and just because somebody dies doesn't mean that it's always criminal and i i, I think it's ridiculous i think if canoeing while impaired should be a 25 dollar ticketable offense okay well you may be right but Probably not for that reason. So let me read you the definition of vessel. And interestingly, vessel is not found anywhere in the criminal code. So despite the, yes, despite the fact that the criminal code refers to a vessel, the only definition of vessel that exists is in a different statute entirely. It's in the Canada Shipping Act, which you and I were looking at this summer around the canoeing well impaired time because we had a boating. Maybe that's why I didn't want to talk about it. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I can't explain your motives. I can't remember everything that I do. But vessel is defined in the Canada Shipping Act as a boat, ship, or craft designed, used, or capable of being used solely or partly for navigation in, on, through, or immediately above water without regard to the method or lack of propulsion and includes a vessel that is under construction but does not include a floating object of a prescribed class like a houseboat. So if you were to adopt that definition from another piece of legislation, it's certainly going to be fall under the criminal code yeah. provisions. Yeah. Yeah. 
but the question is, does the criminal code intend to import a definition from the Canada Shipping Act, or is that just merely an interpretive aid? I go with the interpretive aid because it's a criminal offense. Uh, and because I think when you're going to lay out criminal offenses, you have to be abundantly clear uh, what you're what you're defining as criminal. And I think it is necessary in that circumstance because it's a criminal offense to define it. What? And the code can be amended to do that. But I think Parliament is, the onus is on Parliament to do that. Yes. I think also this case is really interesting because ordinarily when you have an impaired driving case and you want it to be a test case for an interesting legal issue or a novel legal argument, you don't want to do it on a case with the highest stakes possible. You don't want to do it where somebody died because there's always the, you know, cloud of oh, somebody's But, but in this here. case, it's the only time they, they would ever charge anybody probably. It's I the mean. only time they would ever charge anybody, but also the fact that the stakes are so high supports your argument for the use of the Canada Shipping Act as merely an interpretive aid and not determinative of the de vessel definition because you don't want to import um, the definition from another statute to resolve ambiguity in the criminal code or uncertainty in the criminal code where there is the potential for life in prison because it's section 7 and your right to life, liberty, and security of the person is engaged, even in the statutory interpretation stage. That's your argument? That's my argument. Once again, I find your arguments are quite compelling. <laughs> I don't and know I, if that's legally I, sound at all. I have no idea. <laughs> Once uh, again, I don't know if my arguments are legally sound. <laughs> two lawyers who don't know, not equipped to talk about this either. Um, I, I think of all the times I've been canoeing, and I've often, almost always had open liquor in the canoe, I usually have a beer there between my legs. And if I don't have a beer then, then I, the moment I get up on land, I light that fire, um, you know, roast some wieners, have two beers and then get back in the canoe. Although I wouldn't say that I've impaired. I don't know that I've ever been impaired in my ability to but canoe. Think about that definition. And of is it a different definition if it's a canoe? I mean, how, 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 you know, what's your crash risk, you know, in a canoe? Um, you know, you're floating along in a canoe. Does your crash risk go up? Well, show me the stats and how impaired do you have to be? Well, you know, it's a different standard of impairment, I think, in a car than it is in a canoe. No, but think about the definition and how broad that is. Boat, ship, or craft designed for floating on the water. Those big pool floaties that are like unicorns and giant donuts are crafts. And if you're drunk while you're on those, and you usually are... That's now impaired boating. How drunk do you have to be to be impaired in your ability to operate it, though? I mean, like, it doesn't require... Operate. That's the thing. Like, it doesn't require... Like, you have okay. to be pretty drunk not to be able to paddle. Okay. So, when we think of impairment, you can think of, you know, how it's affected your brain or how it's affected your motor skills, or you can think about crash risk. And when it comes to crash risk... Uh, impairment kind of really should be where the rubber hits the road, but... Ooh, it, a driving law pun. Yeah, but it's, um, it's problematic because the crash risk of you having something loose on your passenger seat uh, is higher, statistically speaking, than being at 70 milligrams and 100 milliliters because there's a fairly good chance when you're braking and you go to grab those things on your passenger seat... 
I always just think of all the cassettes I used to keep on my passenger seat in my dad's. Next uh, to a bottle of vodka. Um, no comment. But the, um, <laughs> the uh, you know, I would uh, slam on the brakes because of an emergency braking situation. I'd be reaching to hold all those things on the seat. My dad, before seat belts, used to be reaching over to grab us when we were kids. Um, and, you, you know, you turn the wheel. And the crash risk is increased substantially when you have, like, your purse on the passenger seat. And... You know, there is some research about it in the United States that it's something like 70 to 80 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters is roughly the same as having your purse on your passenger seat. So now what is it when you're canoeing? I mean, what's your crash risk if you've been drinking and you're canoeing? I don't know. I have no statistics for is, that. Is impairment going to be the same impairment as in alcohol where, you know, slight to great, which is really... Not a good definition, uh, especially when you think of the, you know, the scientific definition of impairment is, um, you know, some sort of significant uh, marked influence. And here in Canada, for the courts have said impairment slight to great, so it can be damn near anything, so long as you're slightly different because of alcohol. Well, is it going to be the same? That's not the scientific definition of impairment. That's not the scientific, that's, the, that's no, our but, court's definition. But it's not different from the norm, it's, it's um, like... A, a lack of capacity compared to the norm because you can be different from the norm and be better but that's not impairment no i know i'm just saying the scientific compare uh, the scientific definition of impairment is significantly different than the way the courts have interpreted impairment yes. in your ability to operate a motor vehicle in canadian law yes now does that same standard of impairment apply to you if you're in a canoe oh yes yeah and it shouldn't but it but it does because the mo the criminal code says you know, vessel, railway equipment, aircraft, and motor vehicle. But it's a much more complex task driving a car than it is, you know, floating in a lake in a canoe. I don't know. I feel like I'm better equipped to safely operate a, a car than I am to safely operate a canoe, and that's totally sober. Give me three beers, and I'll be like, I can canoe. I can canoe all week. I can't even swim, though. <laughs> so this would be a problem. That's your problem. Yeah. I'd be the one who died. <laughs> if I ever need to get rid of you, now I know. Can't be prosecuted. Let's go canoeing. Um, anyway, the decision is expected November 15th. So by the time this podcast is out, we should have a decision. Which court? Muskoka. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be some Ontario thing. Of course it's going to be on Ontario, because in BC, the Crown would not probably Crown have would proceeded. not have charged that, yeah. It probably would have done criminal negligence. Yeah, maybe. Because you just avoid the whole, is it a vessel? So often it seems, um, whenever we're dealing with things from Ontario, that they're really just kind of out there. I will later, in a, in a later podcast, share a, an Ontario out there story. But not well, I ran a trial in Brampton and it was just ridiculous. They would never would have approved it in BC. That's... Yeah, I mean, uh, I see some of the things that come out in the news in Ontario, and I'm surprised. It seems worse than Donald Trump's America sometimes. Eh? But one thing that didn't surprise me, and probably doesn't surprise you either, that's come out of the news in Ontario and in BC and in everywhere except Manitoba, um, has been what's happened after cannabis legalization. Can we back up and can I just tell a little bit of a backstory to that? We 
of course, are criminal defense lawyers. And so the story's coming out. We all know that cannabis is coming, and all sorts of people are holding up cannabis legalization by saying the police are not equipped. It's going to be, it's going to be carnage on the road. And it's, you know, mothers against drunk driving and the associations of chiefs of police. They ask for more time, more money, more time, more money. They have to equip all these officers. And meanwhile, each time, you know, the media would call us the clip that would be taken from, um, from the interview, particularly for TV stories and things like that, was, you know, talking about sort of leading into this or, or feeding this uh, belief that there would be carnage on the roads, uh, potentially, and that, you know, the police had to be equipped and they're not pro properly equipped and, boy, they've got to run out there and buy devices and so on and so forth. And um, I, I never thought that it would be, uh, I never expected there to be some substantial change. But what has happened now, Kyla? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> three so. three weeks. We're we're almost a month now. We're uh, what two three? What this podcast will come out on the sixteenth, so one day shy of a month. Um, and no huge spikes in the numbers of cannabis impaired driving charges or investigations. The only place that saw an increase was in Manitoba, where they went from one such investigation in the month before legalization to three after legalization. And of course, we're just talking investigations. So officers who made a decision to pursue a line of inquiry, not a conviction, not a prosecution, not even analysis results that confirmed the officer's suspicions, just an investigation. And that is with a bunch of officers who are out there looking for it right now. Yeah, they're like, it's going to be carnage and we're going to have high people everywhere. Well. Well, As I was saying before, they're already out there. The police are already dealing with it. Well, m my point, though, is that the, you know, the police were suddenly, you know, given these um, instructions to be on the watch for it, uh, on the lookout for these types of cases. And so they're, you know, they're scrutinizing people probably a lot more than they did historically. Probably. And really, no change. But there's lots of other factors. I mean, there's, uh, you know, guys like me, I'm not going to buy it illegally. I'm waiting to buy it lawfully and I will buy it when it's, you know, lawfully, I don't have to order it online. I can go in and maybe talk to somebody at a, at a store when they open one up in Vancouver. You in and I were Vancouver. recently in a U.S. state that had legalized it and you wouldn't even purchase it there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do it until it's, I can lawfully purchase it here and I can try it in the safety of my own home and see what I like. And I'm just waiting to micro dose acid when that comes. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not acid. You're not like, I need someone to supervise me because I'm going to try PCP for the first time. I remember doing acid when I was 15 years old and, um, I just want to feel comfortable. I'm a 50 year old guy now, right? So... But the point is that there's probably a lot of people like me who will go buy it when it's available in a store nearby, like the liquor store, and will try it in those circumstances. And it will be something that is socially used next summer. People are going to be smoking in their backyards and things like that. There'll be the, you know, the, the, uh, the spring party season. Um, so, I, I, you know, I expect usage to go up significantly, dramatically. We know it's going to. There's a significant expectation. There's lots of, you know, uh, assumptions that it's going to go up. So, but is it going to lead to uh, a bunch of um, 
dozens and dozens of uh, people having accidents and carnage on the road? No. I stand by my earlier assertion that this is going to be a slight uptick here and there, and largely because the police are out looking for it. Well, also, I think, you know, we have to recognize that there's a huge shortage right now cross-country um, for cannabis. You have, what, Quebec closed their stores for a couple days. They were like, sorry, we're out, just closed. Um, BC, we've got two stores, one private, one when government owned and uh, they have some products in stock. Um, all of the medical oil has sold out across the country. Um, and I think a lot of people are looking for that alternative method of using cannabis. I know I was talking to somebody, I won't betray who it was, but somebody was telling me, I don't want to, I don't want to smoke it. I, I only want to, you know, eat it or, or have oils because I'm tired of coughing. No, I, I don't want to smoke it either, and uh, I uh, I may try vaping it, but I hate I don't like the word vape. Um, and I, <laughs> so I, you're gonna not vape I, because you're morally opposed whenever to I, the word. Whenever I see people vaping in their cars, um, with the big cloud that with comes the big, out, yeah, uh, I, really I just I, I I feel I'm slightly embarrassed for them. Um, I think it's kind of absurd. Maybe it's fine. I don't know. Maybe I'll try it. Um, no, I'm 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 sort of waiting for edibles. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you can uh, make your own edibles. No, I know that. I know that, and I'm looking forward to it. And I, you know, we are going to see the uh, advance of edibles and and food. And there's going to be chefs who are making you know great food that has different types of cannabis in it, and people are going to be experiencing that. Uh, you know, I I can tell you that I don't like almost all the meals I've had that have beer in them as much as I like beer. Uh, but I like to, cook, you know, and, uh, I... You like I, your beer-battered fish and chips. I like to put a little red wine in my goulash. Yeah. So, yeah, and I don't mind the beer-battered fish and chips. That's true. Yeah. So the um, there will be there will be people cooking with it, and I'm looking forward to the world of edibles, and that's going to be yet another thing that's opening up. I found it interesting how quickly the large... Um, Brewers intend to have declared their intention to be producing some sort of cannabis beer. Which I don't understand because the government has never at any point suggested that cannabis and alcohol are like in the same product are going to be permitted. In fact, all of the messaging from government thus far has been to say this is not something we're going to allow. Well, I know because we sell alcohol in one store and we sell cannabis in another store. Are they going to have cannabis alcohol stores? No, but the feds have said that they are not going to permit products that mix the two. And that will end. You know, that's not going to last for forever. No, the market's going to ask for it. Yeah, but the, uh, and so it may be a ways down the road, but the, I was just surprised that they wanted to mix the two so much um, because I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a great mix. I don't know. I've never had a combination beverage, so I couldn't, you know, I can barely drink liquor these days, so I couldn't really comment on it. Well. I guess we will wait and see. <laughs> Are we done our topics or do we want to talk? Well, I wanted to talk a little more about some of the numbers okay. that have come out yep. um, after this, after legalization, not just in relation to um, cannabis uh, impaired driving, but just impaired driving generally, because those numbers are actually fascinating to me. Um, so in British Columbia, in the weeks before uh, legalization, 
they so the BC Prosecution Service doesn't keep track of uh, the difference between the types of impairment. So if you're charged with impaired driving, it's impaired driving in their stats. It's not um, it's not differentiated between alcohol or drugs, and then by drugs, not what what drug. Yeah. No. So it's hard to say, um, but prior to um, cannabis legalization, there were 43 impaired charges approved by Crown in BC. So that would be after all of the evidence has been gathered, prepared by the police, submitted to the prosecution, because in BC we have the the prosecution approving charges, um, and them reviewing it, determining that it meets the charge approval standard of substantial likelihood of conviction, then approving the charge. 43 before legalization, and 52 after. So almost 10 more, nine more. But you and I both know that there's no way that any of those were drug-impaired driving charges arising out of legalization. That's an impossibility. I agree. That is an impossibility. Um, I'm, I, I don't know how they gathered those stats because you know the time that it takes normally for a police officer to get their file in an impaired driving case in B.C., yeah, well, these are just the ones that the Crown has received the file and checked off and said, okay, approved. Yeah. So, so there I, are investigations that happened three, four months ago. Sometimes, yeah. So I can't see how any of that is connected. The other thing is, I think we will see a slight spike in impaired driving charges overall. Why? Because the police told us they were all, you know, were receiving instructions to set up roadblocks. They were receiving instructions to make sure they had a big police presence as soon as legalization came out to deter anybody uh, and to make sure people knew that, um, you know, that the police were going to be uh, policing this. So they, you know, officers told us, yeah, we've got, a, I'm supposed to do a roadblock tonight. Um, or yeah, we were out last night. And so there was a greater emphasis for a couple of weeks there, uh, uh, to on uh, on impaired driving enforcement, and they probably got more people who are alcohol impaired drivers at that. So that's why you think there's been a you know a, basically a ten percent increase in the number of impaireds approved in BC in the span of a month. Well, that's the other issue. I we don't know when those files when it took place. Yeah. You know, were they a file from August that was, was approved? It a death from eighteen months ago. Sure, but was it a file in August that was approved? You know, November fifth. Uh, you can't say a bunch of files approved uh, suddenly October twentieth because uh, the Surrey detachment manages to send their liaison over to the Crown's office with a box of files. I mean, I don't think those statistics at this point. Uh, probably anywhere in the country are going to be really realistically reflected. But I, I don't, again, you know, the police are already saying, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is not turned into, into carnage on the roads. Yeah. And since October 17th, Vancouver police, so here in Vancouver, have only issued 18 tickets for the Cannabis Act violations. So, so open cannabis in the vehicle or something like yeah, that? Yeah, passengers smoking cannabis. It's basically been limited to the storage of cannabis in the vehicle, which if you are curious about, you can read my blog post, um, or passengers smoking cannabis. It's never seemingly been a driver um, smoking. It's always been passengers thinking they can do it. Driver smoking is a $500 fine plus victim fine surcharge, I think. It's 
hashtag worth it. <laughs> oh, come on. Don't do it. <laughs> no. um, you know, that's assuming you're not impaired, right? That's just yeah. you smoking. Um, but smoking will impair you pretty quickly. Yeah, very quickly after 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, passenger smoking, I don't know, the. that's I think $200 or something plus the victim fine surcharge. And the um, the uh, your passengers can eat. Your passengers are allowed to eat. Yeah, it's uh, only no, smoking it's not or prohibited. vaping. In yeah. fact, none of none of the legislation uh, refers to consumption in methods other than smoking or vaping. Oh no, it does for the driver. No, it doesn't. It does for the driver. It says okay. consuming alcohol, uh, consuming cannabis, um, but for the passengers, it uh, it doesn't cover it. It's only smoking or vaping. You check. I'm I'm checking as I we don't speak. know if I read that on your blog or if it was something that um, I researched because I I started looking into this because we've got a f- couple of these tickets now. But the um, I know the uh, the as a driver you are exempt from holding responsible your passengers if they are consuming edibles, but you are responsible as a driver if your passengers are smoking or vaping. And so I noticed that and I thought, okay, well, they did their best to think that one through. And you should definitely not do any of that if you have someone under 16 in your vehicle, because there's also Motor Vehicle Act provisions for smoking or vaping anything with someone under 16 in your vehicle. So be very careful. Well, it's it's a separate thing. It's a higher fine, I think. You you have to go to the regulations. Oh, no, you are right. You are right. It's a person must not consume while operating... And then a person must not operate if they know that another person is smoking or vaping. So theoretically, you could chow down on edibles while somebody's driving you around. Yeah, exactly. Your passengers the can eat edibles. But I, I think the reason that. for that is obviously as a driver, you're going to know if they're smoking. Yeah. But you're not necessarily going to know what's in that cookie they're eating. But you do have a problem with that in the sense that if your passenger has an edible and you're driving, it's not packaged and it's not stored out of reach of the driver or the passengers. So the the possession rules would prohibit that well the, there's the that there's that one um offense in there that governs any violation of the act so it goes on not just dealing with the driving aspects it's any violation of the act so any violation of the act i think is five hundred dollars or two hundred dollars i can't remember but um I mean, don't let your passenger do it. You're better off to just wait. No, but you don't know if your passenger is sitting in the back seat and you're driving up to Whistler and your passenger's decided to eat a cookie. uh, Yeah, I'm not going to ask him. Hey, is there cannabis in that cookie? Can I test that cookie? (laughs) Just give me a little bit so I can test it to see whether or not there's cannabis in that. The way you should ask it is, That's how how my cannabis guy, cannabis driver speaks. Tell me there's no cannabis in that cookie, please. Yeah. (laughs) Don't, Don't speak like cannabis, Paul. Hey, buddy. That's Any cannabis in that cookie? That's so discriminatory. Actually, I was just trying to sound like somebody from Ontario. I think that cannabis users probably now are like, a, a, you know, you could characterize them as people who are subject to protections against discrimination. Oh, bullshit. No, but you have, you have a comparator <laughs> just... group of non-cannabis users. So what? That's, uh, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a drinker, so... Just because there's other people who don't drink, I'm discriminated against? Yeah. What if you were denied an employment opportunity because you're not a teetotaler? Uh, I, I think they could deny me an employment opportunity in those circumstances. For a non-safety conscious job? I wouldn't tell them. <laughs> I'd never admit it. It's all on the podcast, Paul. Yeah, I'd never it's admit it. It's too late. It's okay. I don't drink at work. and I never drink much. 
I, I can attest to, I've known you, what, almost 10 years now, and uh, I've seen you drunk, like, a couple times. Yeah, and again, I've never drank at work, and I usually only drink when I'm home or, you know. Like a social event. Social event, yeah. And the only times I did get more than, you know, was like the Christmas party or something yeah, like that. Say, where I was I'm remembering some Christmas parties, but they're pretty fuzzy. <laughs> Last year's Christmas party, I drank and I tested myself. And I, at the end of the night, I was like at 20 milligrams. I drove home. Yeah. I, last year's Christmas party, I I beat you, don't forget, in the uh, the mulled wine competition. And I didn't drink any. Yeah. I still wore the lampshade, though, so that's the important <laughs> thing. All right. Lots of very interesting statistics coming out. I really want to keep an eye on this, and we're going to revisit this issue in the coming weeks on the podcast because I want to see how this plays out. And then I also want to do, ultimately, a broader discussion about the difference between Canada and the U.S. If our predictions play out that the numbers are never going to be a huge spike, about why in the U.S. there were spikes after legalization and in Canada there hasn't been. Why would that be? Well, this is the thing. I have some theories, but I want to wait for the numbers so I can... So now you don't want to discuss the man charged for using a mobility scooter to tow a boat down a highway in Australia? I know so little about Australian, you know, towing laws, although I can't imagine that that was very safe. He's got a... The picture is him with, like, a a good-sized boat on a trailer... And he's got a like a, a scooter, like your standard shopping mall senior mm-hmm. with a bad hip scooter, and he's pulling a seventeen foot motorboat. Um, <laughs> this is up in Australia. This uh, is why we need the commercial vehicle safety enforcement police. Well, apparently he's uh, charged for some equivalent of, of driving while prohibited uh, and driving a unregistered trailer on the road, um, uninsured vehicle. Uh, so you know he was probably prohibited from driving. And um, and he had to get his boat somewhere. Maybe there's a big storm coming. Well, so I think he's got a necessity defense. <laughs> what I will say, what I will say about that, is that people find, as you know, a lot of very creative solutions to their driving problems. If you have a creative solution to your driving problem, run it by a lawyer first. Don't phone ICBC. Don't phone the RCMP. Phone a lawyer. Driving prohibitions. When people are prohibited from driving, they're always looking for the. Can I drive with my international driver's license? What if I get no. a What if I get a Yukon driver's no. license? Can I drive with a Yukon driver's no. license? Can I? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was like every time. I'm like, okay, look. I just want to take a tape recorder of me saying no and just press play and play it on a loop until they hang up. I say the same thing to the clients every time. I say, I understand you're trying to come up with something. You've got to understand that the government has been at this for a long time and they've seen everybody try and come up with every different type of clever angle and they're more clever than you yeah just like i tell you know clients look the police have been investigating people for years and years and years they've got all sorts of techniques for investigating people you're not regularly a person under investigation who's come up with some clever method to try and defeat them just listen to your lawyer and we'll 
try and get you through here as best as possible. They're always, you know, people want to try and outsmart the system. And it's a desperate thing. I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're desperate in those circumstances. So sure. I get it. But if the answer, the answer know, again is no. Yeah. And if you do want to know defenses to your driving while prohibited charge, you can check out my recent blog. And if you do have some creative way that you think will get you around your driving prohibition that isn't driving on your Alberta license or your international license, give us a call. We're always happy to talk about any driving law related issues. Uh, 604-685-8889 is our number. And and you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Tune in next week for another exciting episode.